RPG Pop Club. RPG Pop Club. RPG Pop Club. RPG Pop Club. Yeah! Hi, I'm Philip Sokoloff. And I'm Sarah Nicole Carter. And this is RPG Pop Club. Each week we play a Star Trek tabletop RPG adventure, and then we review it. But Phil, today we are doing something a little different. That's right, Sarah Nicole. Today we have a very special guest. Joining us today is Mr. Michael Scott. Between 1976 and 1982, Scotty designed and co-designed seven war games, including the Starfleet Battle Manual for Game Science. In addition, in the same time frame, he wrote four RPGs, or rather four distinct versions of the same RPG, some of which were more explicitly Star Trek, and some which mixed in elements from all across the sci-fi genre. These were, of course, some of the earliest RPG materials ever published. And the main reason we are talking to him today, Scotty, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, sir. Good evening. How are you guys doing over on the West Coast? <laughs> well, I, we're, going, we're doing good on the West Coast. Phil, you're in... I'm in your time zone. I'm, I'm in the central zone. Okay. I'm doing well. We're, we're so happy that you're here. It's very exciting for us. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the, the invite. We've, we've been playing your RPG now for, for several months. And so. this worries me. <laughs> <laughs> I, noticed, I noticed on your site you, have, uh, you don't have this cover. No, I have the purple planet. <laughs> I, you know, I think this one uh, is, is the more uh, true advertising in terms of the content of the RPG, it's it's a uh, it's it's just a planet on the on the cover and not a spaceship, which is more um, what the RPG covers. Yeah, it really is more about just the away teams and whatnot, the landing parties. But well, uh, our first question for you about your involvement in Star Trek prior to writing Space Patrol, the first RPG. Well, I've. Uh, Always been a, a, a huge Star Trek fan. I, I saw the original episode on a black and white TV. Wow. I was in Utah, and I had to hike down to my cousin's house to watch it since the people I was staying with while my father was in Vietnam. Uh, they were really good Mormons. And I don't think they ever turned the TV on for anything but the conferences and the Tabernacle Choir. Wow. But but so I went down to my cousin's house and we watched a man trap and I was blown away. Nice. And so did you continue your fandom? Were you really involved? Did you watch the animated series? Did you buy the technical manual? Did you go to fan clubs or conventions? Did you <laughs> did you buy the zines, the fanzines? Like Philip? I could, I could be, you know, sarcastic, funny and say, no, of course not. But actually, I did every single one of those things. I love uh, it. I, I, I joined the Air Force myself in 1970. And uh, while I was overseas in stationed in Thailand, uh, I got very heavily involved in gaming. Uh, we played Avalon Hill games like Rick Toffin's War and uh, at the USO. We play like 12 hours straight. <laughs> awesome. And uh, I got uh, very much interested in doing air combat type games. And I worked a lot in, on, on those. Uh, one of the games I helped make was uh, MIG Killers, which was a board type game. One of the first ones to ever use real energy. Okay. Uh, 
aircraft uh, envelope type energy. You know, you pull so many G's, you lose speed, blah, blah, blah. Good. Anyway, uh, it worked pretty good and I got a pretty good rep for that. But my true love was Star Trek. And the reason that I came down here to the deep south was because of Lou Zaki. While I was in the Air Force, Lou produced this. Right, the Star Trek uh, Battle Manual, 1972. Yeah, now what happened was uh, Lou Zaki was a, uh, an air traffic controller at George Air Force Base, and I was uh, stationed up at Beale, where the, where the Blackbirds flew out of. And uh, we got to gaming on the phone and then started meeting at uh, various tournaments around California. And uh, he was selling Starfleet Battle Manual, Star Trek Battle Manual. And then right, he promptly right. got a big letter from Paramount. Because he had no license. Of he course. had no license. And, and he was uh, trying to fly under the radar, I'll bet. Well, he tried and didn't work. Uh, <laughs> he, ended up, uh, he ended up changing the names of everything and created a game called Aliens, it's Alien Space, which uh, had the same ships but didn't look like the Enterprise or a Klingon battle cruiser. Mm -hmm. Serial numbers and, are filed off. <laughs> and we struck up a really good friendship with Franz Joseph Schnaubel. Th this is so exciting to me. So did you personally um, have a relationship with Franz Joseph? Yes. I met him in San Diego, one of the StarCons, Star Trek Association for Revival back in the 70s. Awesome. And uh, he was... Uh, at the convention selling his uh, gigantic poster version of his famous blueprints. Oh. We, Philip's going to find it on Tell eBay us. within the next three hours. <laughs> I don't know about no, that. It's hard to find. Uh, you can find uh, PDF versions. If, if you go to Cygnus, you, you, can get a, you can download a PDF version. Scotty, but, I, 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 I rescanned my set for that site. Quite oh, sure. okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you then. I'm, uh, any any uh, version of these uh, old blueprints that I find, I'm rescanning. I did the Klingon ones recently. Well, anyway, uh, Luzaki and I struck up a, a good friendship with uh, Franz Joseph. Uh, I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but his daughter was the head of the Star San Diego mm -hmm. group. Karen Schnaubelt. Uh-huh. And that was through her influence that he ended up doing those blueprints and doing the tech manual. Yeah. And he was a naval architect. So she had a fan club and, and she asked her dad to uh to write up make up some blueprints and a technical manual for her fan club. I don't think she expected quite what she got. <laughs> nice. You see, because Franz was extremely careful about things like like lofting, how high a ceiling is, uh, and an overhead if you're in the navy. He really tried to make the ship look like it could work. And he made some mistakes along the way. And on the fans that are nitpicky and out, you know, had nothing better to do but zoom in on a little tiny detail have been, uh, you yeah. know, changing his plans. But uh, he did a really excellent piece of work. Well, he zoomed in on the tiny details to make his work. So I guess we can't blame them. But I always say, if, if Franz Joseph was wrong, I don't want to be right. Because <laughs> <laughs> the work he did is amazing. And it really, it sparks so much amazing fandom um all the all the other people that did blueprints and and the starfleet handbook and all that stuff uh back in the time when star trek was kind of a dead property 
or was it? Uh, well, not amongst the fans. Uh, right. Fandom was really strong. I'm not going to abuse you with, with knowing some of the filks, filk songs. You don't know what oh. a filk song is? No. Oh, and you're music people and don't know what a filk is. I'm okay. so excited for wherever this is going. I can't wait. <laughs> well, you know what a folk song is? Yes. And you know what a drinking song is? You Do know, where you, take, where, where you take some particular song and you add your own lyrics to it? Yeah. Well, filk songing, filk singing is fantasy science fiction version of that. And the reason it's called filking, it was a typo in a fanzine. This is amazing. It was supposed to be folk. Right. And somebody replaced the I with uh, the O with an I and it became filk singing. So you get lots and lots of really great uh, Star Trek songs, which uh, made it into the fanzine. So you guys don't, don't know fanzines. We, that's all the only way we this, could communicate back then. This whole, um, this whole podcast has been a journey back into that whole world because uh, with your RPG and some of the other stuff we're looking at, it's, it's the 1970s scene which like you said, was not dead with the fans. And, uh, and I've, I've, you know, like Sarah Nicole said, I've been on eBay and I've seen <laughs> song books and I've seen um, recipe books. Oh, I've sure. Seen, you know, obviously uh, in the technical manual, it has how to build a Vulcan lyre or how to build a tri-dimensional chess set. Right. Um, how to build a communicator. Uh, yeah, and, there actually uh, is a circuit diagram that I've been told will work if you're really, really good. We've been told that by our friend Dave as well. In fact, they, they say that, that anything in here can be built except for the actual transporters and warp engines. That otherwise, uh, all the technology to build a starship existed, theoretically, in the 1970s. Well, Franz Joseph had a special deal with Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry was very friendly with fans that took time with him and met with him and his wife, of course. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I've actually been to Lincoln Enterprises way back then. And oh, well, uh, I wouldn't give. Well, they had it was basically it was like being in a it was like being in a garage that was stuffed with everything you could possibly want from little leatherette insignia badges to strips of film, which you could then make into slideshows. Because we didn't have video players back then. Instead, right. we had a slide projector. And we'd get all these outtakes from, from Lincoln Enterprises and make our own show with comments like MST3K. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's amazing. Do you still have this? <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. And uh, uh, Franz's license derived directly from Gene Roddenberry. He had cut out Paramount. And at that time, Paramount put up with it. Because yeah. Star Trek's dead. Right. And then along comes Star Wars. And the world and, is never the same again. Yeah. Uh, what was supposed to be a possible second Star Trek called Phase Two. Mm -hmm. if, you may have seen a book. You may have seen a book on it. They've got a really good publication that shows all the artwork from that. Yeah. Uh, phase Two was turned into Star Trek The Motion Picture. Right. And... Uh, I, I have always been a huge Star Trek fan. I like the other stuff, too. I'm a big fan of Alien and Battlestar Galactica and Star Wars and other shows. 
uh, Babylon 5, I think, is very well done. But I always come back to Star Trek. You're in good company. I think we all feel similarly. <laughs> We'd love to hear why Star Trek stands out for you. It's especially a, today. It's a whole world, and it's a very optimistic world. Even in the even in the versions of it, which have dark aspects to them, like Deep Space Nine. Uh, even when a starship gets lost for seven years, remember that. They still did their damnedest to hold on to Starfleet principles. And uh, I think that's one of the things that appeals to me about it, is that there is a principle behind that, that we can be better than we are. Even today, I think so, though it feels a little drastic sometimes. Well, let me ask you something. I've, I've noticed from your, your, uh, your, your website that you guys do use extensive maps and deck plans in your gaming. And I really appreciate that. How much does it really help you in the game when you're playing? Oh, that's a loaded question. You know, uh, it, it's it, it can be kind of tricky. One of our players, Dave, uh, is a contemporary of yours, and he grew up um, just pouring through those blueprints and uh, imagining how to get from point A to point B on the blueprints. So he's really helpful. He, he almost uh, co-DMs, you know, in, in the way that he is able to help uh, map our way through, you know, where the gangways are and and how many decks the engineering takes up and that sort of thing. Does he ever um, do the? You don't turn right at that point. You have to go down this this uh, elevator shaft for this uh, stairwell shaft. And yeah, yes, <laughs> yes he, does. he does. Use the Jeffries tube to get to this point because you can't get there otherwise. Oh boy. He tells us all the stuff about what the Jeffrey's tube was meant to be and, and what the, you know, the blueprints show it as it's a lot of fun. Um, I think it's cool because, you know, we get to tap into that, that the uh, era of fandom and, you know, it, it helps it feel real. It's not really designed for an RPG. So it's kind of hard to sometimes for the players, the players who aren't immersed in that subculture to read. So you, you can comment better on that. Sarah Nicole. Well, I think it, I think yeah. it does help with the RPG aspect. I think it helps people get into character and realize that we are in a world and we are in a ship, and the ship is a character in our game, right? And that needs to be respected. Like, if we were playing D and D, and you had a map, we would still follow the map, right? And so we need to be doing that. I think sometimes some of us who are more like, let's press the button and and shoot in a room before we figure out what's happening sometimes get frustrated when we're map reading during gameplay. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, that you think it slows you down a little bit sometimes. Sure. Or it takes, sometimes takes you out because you're like, would I, would my character know the ship and just be able to get to this point and we could cut to that scene or should we spend 30 minutes, all of us really making sure we're mapping our routes? You know, depends on whether you're a cadet or a bridge officer. <laughs> If you're That's a bridge perfect. officer, you'd better be able to know how to get from point A to point D. But uh, on the other hand, you can sometimes play that game of, in of introducing a new character to the ship and going, oh, I haven't shown you the gallery over the shuttle bay. You know, that <laughs> <laughs> have, we, have, you, have you seen the Arboretum? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so great. cool to see all that stuff. The bowling alley comes up constantly in our games. 
It's a fixture <sighs> yeah. of our games. If people but, are left on the ship, we're definitely bowling. And we roll for it. Unless it's unless so we played a Klingon side campaign, uh, Scotty, and they don't have bowling alleys on the on the Klingon vessel. No, they have rock solid beds and shooting ranges. Yes. We should uh, ask Scotty what he thinks about the bathroom in the shuttle debate. Hold oh, oh that's a great question. <laughs> we, well, we always in, do they have a head in the shuttle? Do you want the James Dewan answer or do you want the the Michael Scott answer? I want both <laughs> What the funniest answer you can give us? Well, the funniest answer I ever got to that question uh, was uh, at a convention in San Francisco called the Red Hour Festival. Long before your time, but we traveled from Utah to attend it. And uh, they had uh, Arlene Martell, Walter Koenig, uh, and uh, James Dewan, and uh, David Gerald there. And uh, at some point, the microphone in the high school auditorium where they were doing all their presentations uh, began to do, do feedback. And somebody yelled, fix it, Scotty. And he leaned forward and popped the mic a good one and send the noise went away. <laughs> but later on, they asked him the question, uh, you know, how do you go to the bathroom on the Enterprise? And, he, and uh, Scotty goes, well, you, you see, we have phasers and very careful aim. It Excellent. got a lot of laughs. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> That's we, perfect. We eventually decided that, you know, when they were on the shuttle, that the crew just had to hold it the whole time they were on the shuttle. <laughs> That's to make sure. Very oh. careful transporter work if you have a transporter <laughs> on your shuttle. Nice. Um, but, uh, but seriously, uh, you have to go the practical. Now yeah. we, you know, that modern modern day we have lots and lots of of aircraft that are roughly the size of a shuttle, such as an OV twenty two Osprey, mm -hmm. or a bigger version would be a C one thirty Hercules. You got a lot of people on board those ships, and somebody has to go to the bathroom. I'm sorry, they do, and uh, and it doesn't pay to be squeamish. The bigger, the bigger the plane, the more privacy you will have. So obviously in a seven-man shuttle, <laughs> there's not a heck of a lot of privacy. Right. I, so I, I would, I'm, to digress from Star Trek, this a smidge, all three of us, or and April, or who we talked about earlier, we were all Sea Scout leaders in the Bay Area. And okay. so we would, we would say on these... Philip can tell you more about the specifications of the ships that we sailed on, but um, thirty foot we, wooden sailing whaleboats from the Second World War. Oh, our bathroom that is was a, cool. Yeah, our yeah. bathroom was a bucket under a tarp or yep. over the side. And some of us in this call right now who are muted and not speaking because they're producing the show might have fallen off <laughs> a boat while we were sailing. <laughs> And then we might have had to stop the boat mid-sail and um, retrieve him. That might have happened one time. So well, a little digression, <laughs> different kind of shit. So you think people no. hang their ass out of the shuttle? No, <laughs> but, I, but uh, I wasn't a Sea Scout, but I was a Civil Air Patrol cadet. And then later on, I, I, was, a, I was an officer in, in Civil Air Patrol. And uh, one of the things I had to do was explain 
all of these, I had to answer all the questions from the cadets. How do you go to the bathroom in space? Very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thing that you do not want to break down at all is a toilet on the shuttle or a toilet on, on the ISS. And they've had yeah. them break down a number of times. Oh, I think no. they're on their third or fourth version on the ISS. Uh, nice. They have they have an impeller fan blade, which is supposed to make everything go the right direction. Sometimes it even works. Well, shall we bring it back? Bring yes. it back in. Oh, but one more oh, thing. Sorry. Oh, please. Yes. Well, let me let me answer the actual question. Okay. Uh, first of all, on board the Enterprise, there are bathrooms because you've actually seen people come out of them. You don't actually get to see the bathroom. But you've seen people in the doorway of where the bathroom is, according to the blueprints. Right. As far as the shuttle goes, obviously, the people in the shuttle, if somebody simply has to do it, uh, you give them a little privacy back in the corner and they fold out a, a uh, an attachment from the side of the wall and do their thing, clean up real quick, and hope that the artificial gravity does not fail. Great answer. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm, You're quite this well. is important. Thank you. <laughs> well, let's go back to the sub-license you were able to get from Franz Joseph for uh, Starfleet Battle Manual. Yeah. Uh, by the way, a lot of people confuse that with uh, uh, the game published in Texas. Starfleet uh, Battles. Starfleet Battles. They, all bo they both derive from the same license. But Aren't they uh, sub didn't they get a sub license from Lou Zaki originally? Uh, I think Lou helped him negotiate it. Okay. Uh, what what happened was uh, you may not know it, but Franz Joseph was an ardent pacifist. He truly he believed that we should be headed in the direction of making friends with everybody and not shooting people, which was an interesting attitude for him since he was, you know, a naval architect who worked on ships of, of war. But he was serious about it. And what we did was both both Lou and I and uh, Steve uh, Cole, Steve Cole uh, at Task Force Games, we sold the game ideas to him as simulations. These are simulations that a cadet would do to learn spaceship tactics and to learn about things. And, and, and uh, it was never intended to, to call it a war game. That's a great idea. So, so that way he wasn't worried about uh, people really imagining uh, making up wars. No, he was, uh, it was sold to him. The licenses were, the idea of the licenses were sold to him on the basis that these were simulations for training cadets. And like you said, um, you in the military would play war games and that's i think that's a formal part of the training these days it is uh matter of fact the uh, mig killers game was part of air force's project warrior which was back in the uh late 70s it was a method of, uh, of popularizing air combat with the troops who didn't get to fly Air Force is kind of weird. Everybody's an officer that does any actual war fighting, and everybody else's support, with some with some exceptions, of course. Makes Gene sense. Roddenberry flew bombers. That I knew. And uh, wouldn't you know it, all of his people on board the Enterprise, with very few exceptions, are all officers. That yeah. an astronaut is an officer. <laughs> At any rate, uh, Lou... Uh, 
also used the uh, the same mechanisms for Starfleet Battle Manual to do air combat as well. And he produced a, a series of games called Basic Fighter Combat and Advanced Fighter Combat, which I helped with. And uh, they all they all use the red compass cards. And if you ever look at the compass cards on the uh, Starfleet Battle Manual, you'll see that they're 400 grad compasses, just like in the tech manual. For some reason, Franz Joseph felt that the, the Starfleet would use grads and not degrees. Hmm. If you take a look at the maps of the universe and whatnot, you'll see that it's grads, which means a hundred grads to a to a quadrant. Right. He's oh, checking. He's checking me. Yay! I no, I just want to see. He's excited. That's what it is. Franz was a really great guy. Now, uh, Lou Zaki is the guy who created the Starfleet Battle Manual originally, and I came down from Utah to live to live with him and work out of his house doing his uh, distributorship and designing games. He thought he was a big Star Trek fan. And then he met me. <laughs> and uh, for example, uh, we wanted to know how many photon torpedoes the Enterprise could fire. It's all right there in the blueprints. Yeah, well, Scotty had the audio tape of Elon of Troyes, and I played that tape to destruction, listening to Kirk ordering a full spread of photon torpedoes and Chekhov firing them and it going out in three bloops of pairs of torpedoes without even having to see the movie or see the show. You could, you could visualize it in your head. So we fire six torpedoes. That's a Perfect. Full so, but my point is, is that Lou got really, really sick of me living and breathing Star Trek all the time. So when Heritage Models in Texas said they were looking for somebody to do a, uh, a game to support their miniature line that they had a license for after the animated Star Trek came out. He said, you should get Scotty to do it, and then he'll leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was your involvement in RPGs up well, to that point? Uh, I had uh, written a game called uh, Space Patrol with a good friend of mine back in Utah, and uh, who was also an airplane fanatic. And uh, it had a really good original cover. I love it. I really uh, love it. Drawn by me. The little crab guy ended up being the mascot of a local big science fiction convention that's now in its 32nd, 33rd year. Oh, that's awesome. He called Herbie. I love it. RBY. Yeah. Yeah, I like, uh, like the car. Um, so, so prior to writing even Space Patrol, what, what sort of RPGs had you played? I tried to play Dungeons and Dragons when it first came out. While I was in the Air Force, we, we, uh, I met a guy who actually came from Baton Rouge, where I live right now. He was our squadron safety officer, and he got me involved in the Society for Creative Anachronism. Sure. This guy loved playing war games, so he would drag a bunch of us airmen to his house off base. We had one of the original uh, creators of uh, of D&D came to one of our game uh, tournaments. Who? Who? It wasn't Gary. It was the other guy. Dave Arnson? 
Yes, David Arneson. Wow. And he brought with him the original Castle Blackmore. And it was set up on a huge table. And you could take the top of the castle off and look down into the corridors and everything. And at that time, there wasn't any D&D, at least not that we knew of. We were playing chain mail. Anybody know what chain mail was? Sure do. <laughs> All right, Eric. I'll go grab my, my set off of the, off the uh, shelf of that, too. I have that somewhere. There's chain mail. Yeah, it was a war game. And we played it as a, as a war game. I, um, I actually had a Texaco map of California, and I own part of California, and I could call up peasant, peasants to go fight people, and, and it was a lot of fun. We used the uh, Sherwood Forest and Robin Hood uh, Nottingham Airfix figures we painted up and modified to, to be our figures, and we played turn, regular tournaments and one of these, Arneson showed up and had Blackmore. So we played the jousting rules in front of that model castle and then went into the castle to rescue a fair maiden who had been kidnapped by orcs or something, as much as I can remember. It was a long time ago. But we had a blast. So imagine yeah. my surprise when I left the Air Force and went back to Salt Lake City and the local hobby shop got that white box in for sale. One. One copy. They were made in Gary's basement, so I mean, <laughs> that had to have been a huge demand. Well, People I didn't have been. I didn't tell Gary, and I didn't tell Dave any of this, but uh, we promptly took it up to the University of Utah and copied it. Oh, I'm sure. With enough copies so that everybody could actually read it, and then we discovered it was essentially unplayable. I don't. Well, that's a little harsh. Obviously, it was playable. We wouldn't be where we are today, right? Everyone, everyone had to make their own version of it. It's part yes. of the charm. You could go from club to club, from town to town. It'd be a different version of Dungeons and Dragons. We had a guy who ran one in Salt Lake City, and he was a very good artist. He also made metal miniatures himself. He spun cast them in a big spin casting rig. What he did was he had a huge map painted up of the dungeons that were perspective. So when you look down on the map, you're looking down into the dungeon, okay? Then he took a huge sheet of black poster board and cut a circle in it that represented the distance you could see with a torch. And he would move, he would slide that black cardboard over the table so you could only see parts of the dungeon as it was seen by your torches while you played. And uh, this is where I got my first science fiction bug because I wanted to see what would happen if phasers were brought in. Nice. So we wrote up some quick rules for phasers. And <laughs> next thing you know, we're being called heretics and kicked out of the D&D &D club. But, that <laughs> but, but fortunately, there was a huge Star Trek club that I'd helped create called Star Trek Intermountain. And we uh, ended up uh, having hugely attended regular meetings at local libraries. We did the slideshows. We would go out in the city park and play Starfleet Battle Manual with the full-size models. Amazing. And uh, it was just a blast. There's a breathless quality to this original D&D set where he's just kind of like throwing out ideas because it's it's almost it's new to the authors themselves and they're like here's something you can do map out a dungeon 
We're going to throw in monsters from Greek mythology and Tolkien and anything we can think of, Dracula, Conan, whatever. Yeah, and they weren't worried too much about copyrights back then either. Right. And and uh, and because it's it, it almost seems like part of the phenomenon of it was it not being ready to play, demanding a little bit of the hobbyist to come out. So all the stuff you're talking about, about recreating, uh, you know, the space battles on large scale or writing your own version of the RPG. It's just such a, a rich uh, time and, and so inspirational. And it sort of seems like that's what you were going for with Space Patrol. You were throwing in the kitchen sink. This is Star well, Trek, DD, but not just Star Trek, right? We had... Uh... We had been to some conventions by then, and we knew that uh, that there was a crying need for good science fiction gaming. When I moved down to uh, down to Mississippi at that time, uh, and I got married, took my wife on on her honeymoon to uh, Miami Beach. Or nice. SunCon, oh. which was the World Science Fiction Convention. Sexy. I got to meet the guy who made Traveler, Mark Miller and company. Yeah. I got to meet uh, the uh, Flying Buffalo guys who did Tunnels and Trolls. Mm -hmm. And their own science fiction game, which was very strange. It did nothing like Tunnels and Trolls, by the way. And uh, all the TSR stuff was coming out like star probe or space probe i forget star but, uh, probe yeah uh and uh, I, I and i had just made space patrol for luzaki and i took a pile of them down there to sell them and lo and behold i ran into robert heinlein no what i'm name dropping i i understand but you, you've won the you've won the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Dave Arnson was a pretty big one for me, but for Sarah Nicole Heinlein, you just Heinlein yeah. was excellent. Heinlein was uh, he had just come from surgeries and whatnot, and the only way you could get an autograph from him was if you at least volunteered to try to give blood. Oh wow! Because he had been saved by Rare Blood Group wow. donations. Sure. And uh, so my wife and I, we got in line and I went to, he, he had a table set up right next to the mobile blood mobile thing. That's awesome. And I went through and donated blood and we went out and we got to meet him and Virginia. Wow. And, uh, and he, he wanted to know where I was from. Pretty soon we were ignoring everybody else in the whole, <laughs> in the whole parking area. But uh, he was really nice. And uh, he made, I tried to give him a copy of Space Patrol, and he insisted I autograph it. Oh, my God. Wow. So I got a copy of Avalon Hill's Starship Troopers game, and he autographed that for me. Um, so, this is so amazing. I was, I, was so I was so glad to finally meet the man. Yeah. An incredible, an incredible writer. Our, did, did you know the story behind David Gerald and Robert Heinlein? Tell me, please. I'm, Tell us. I'm, I might cry. I'm so excited. You guys, we're talking about Highland right now. Okay. Well, you see, uh, David Gerald wrote Trouble with Tribbles. Yes. And somebody pointed out, you know, this is an awful lot like a Heinlein story 
Right. Yes. And uh, the, which is which you might recall was the Rolling Stones when they're taking flat cats from Mars to sell them to belters. Uh, so they they promptly got on the phone to Robert Heinlein and says, "We're really really sorry, but we think we stole this idea from you." And Heinlein says, "Eh, don't worry about it. I stole it from O. Henry." <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he say something later though? Maybe I'm misremembering, but didn't he, later he say something like, "Maybe I should have got some more, some money out of that." <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he did. Uh, Heinlein, uh, you know, paid for his his a couple of his houses uh, with his with his book royalties, and uh, he always claimed that he wrote to make money. Sure. And you make money by entertaining people, and if you don't entertain people, you don't make money. Accurate. Meeting Heinlein was the highlight of my life as well, and uh, and I'm glad yes. I'm glad to see your reaction to that. I'm excited just to hear you talk. Like seriously, I'm getting emotional. I, I'm very happy to hear that he was not a jerk. <laughs> he was not a jerk at all. He was yeah. very nice. He and so was Virginia. Yeah, that's just awesome. Thank they you for sharing that. People. Oh my gosh, uh, you're very welcome. Well, I'm so sure you have a whole bunch more questions, Philip, and I'm not letting you get to them. Oh, so it's please, fine. Carry Philip, on. If he's going to talk about Heinlein, I don't want to hear any of your questions, Philip. <laughs> we can we could just make this into a Heinlein podcast if that's what you want. Well, if you like Heinlein that much, that's fine. But here's a, <laughs> um, here's a, here's a couple of other things that I did, which are reminiscent of Heinlein. But uh, Strike Team Alpha was a miniatures game. It was based on Star Patrol, and uh, one of the playtesters was George Alec Effinger, the science fiction writer who lived in New Orleans until his death. This is another game that we did out that was based on Star Patrol. It's called Star Command, and it's a spaceship combat game that used vector mechanics. Right. So uh, anyway, uh, Heritage Models eventually lost their license. They, they produced two big games for their miniatures. One was John Carter, Warlord of Mars. And the other one was uh, something called Star Trek Adventure Gaming on the Final Frontier, which is kind of a mouthful. Which one was first? Uh, mine was, because I got it to him in like a month. <laughs> Scotty, all I, all I had to do was rewrite Space Patrol. <laughs> well, do you? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But do you realize that yours is the first licensed RPG of all time? The first licensed Star Trek one, sure. No, of know. any of any property. Are you sure? I did uh, until anyone could disprove it. Yes, we're running with that. Okay, I, I'm pretty sure, unless you know what John Carter would... beat it to press. I was thinking I, maybe a Tecamel or. Uh, well, uh, that was first published as an RPG, so and it was you know it wasn't yeah. licensed off of anything else. But you might you might very well be right, in which case I'm kind of uh, the kind of overwhelming. But uh, the game was intended to 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 be a mechanism for playing with the little lead figures, which to be honest were really kind of crude. Mm -hmm. If you've ever had a chance to see them. Well, I've seen them in catalogs, I guess. I haven't. They 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 come up on eBay from time to time. Yeah, you, you can tell an Andorian because he has antennas, you know. <laughs> At least they're in action poses. Yeah. Uh, later on, some very good miniatures were made in England. They were based on Star Trek the motion picture. They look pretty good. 
But these were made from the animated series as much as anything. So Heritage has uh, has gotten the license to do Star Trek miniatures, and they want to package it with uh, with a rule set. Is that basically right. the gist? That is it. And so um, someone, uh, Lou, I guess, puts them in touch with you, knowing that yep. you've done Space Patrol, and you hastily adapt it. How how much time did you have to do that? Approximately a month. And I'm, and I'm afraid it shows. <laughs> well, but, so so most of the material is is from Space Patrol stuff you've already thrown together, or is there a lot a lot new in there? Well, I had to uh, on Space Patrol. I did not specifically talk about the uh, individual characters as much, whereas with Star Trek. I could get in there and, and talk all about all about the characters and do it legally. I could talk about Kirk and Spock and McCoy and, and Klingons and so on without worried well without any without a worry that I was stepping on somebody's copyright toes. And uh, I tried to, I tried to create something which beginners could easily get into because I had a feeling that a lot of Star Trek fans were not necessarily gamers. That's not so true today. Gaming turns out to be one of the ways that fans express themselves. And there's so many licensed properties. We're yeah. going to be playing every licensed RPG ever. Well, maybe not everyone, but we'll get <laughs> to that eventually. <laughs> but we well, started with the right one. This is the first, Star Trek. Well, Aliens is really good, and it's very simple, and it has to be because you kill people real quick in it. You've got to be able to make a new character like that. Well, that's yeah. kind of neat. Uh but it's also very beautifully done, and I and 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 I think you'd, I think you'd enjoy it. I also have the Expanse. I did it. I I, I contributed the Kickstarter for the Expanse. Yeah, and if you, you have if you haven't seen the Expanse, it is probably the best hard science fiction show that has ever appeared on television. The way that they've handled microgravity, the design of the ships. I mean, I love the Enterprise. But is it really efficient to have everybody perpendicular to the motion, the force of motion? Wow. Well, it, it's practical for the TV uh, yeah, yeah. production, probably. But it's practical. Yeah, but, you know, ship, model. But, but, but ships like the Serenity, you know, they're all built linearly. Uh, the Battlestar Galactic is built like that. All of those ships are built like seagoing ships. And you just have to kind of go with it. Uh, but in the expanse, your, your ship is a, is an office building with engines running at the, one end of it. And you have to have ladders and elevators to go to any other part of the ship. And when you're not thrusting, you're on the float. Unless your ship is big enough that you can spin it to create centrifugal gravity. I always wondered if somebody on the Discovery thought that was a good idea to have part of the hull spin like that, but I think that's something to do with the spore drive. I think that was just the rule of cool. Yeah, yeah, really yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, not, you know, every Star Trek show has its thing, and Discoveries was the spore drive. <laughs> that and that and really lizard-like Klingons. Oh. oh. Yeah, Almost fish headed. We can get into a long talk about discovery. Yeah, but anyway, eventually Heritage lost their license because they weren't selling enough. They had they had very grandois plans that they were going to sell racks of these games, both uh, uh, 
Star Trek and the John Carter game in bookstores. You'd go to a wire rack and there would be the books on one quadrant and the miniatures on, on the other quadrants. And you could buy Deja Thoris and Captain Kirk and buy the books to play them with. Uh, the John Carter game, believe it or not, was a romance. I believe it. You were supposed you know, to travel. Sir, Each player was supposed to be a chieftain and his princess. The other, the other chieftains would capture your princess, and you had to chase them across Mars, doing duels and flying and flyers and everything. And uh, you were trying to get princess points so that at the very oh, wow. climax of the adventure, you'd be in the ballroom, and you'd see the princess, and you'd throw your sword at her feet and proclaim your, your undying love to your princess. You, know, you can't call a Martian a princess unless you're, like, serious. Right. You're describing the perfect game. And, 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 she, <laughs> and she's supposed to reply, my chieftain, you know? Yeah. And you live happily ever after, except until the next villain steals your wife and you have to chase him across Mars again. That's Phil, how we're playing this next. We're playing this, this is next. next. <laughs> yeah. I don't, if you can find a copy, you're welcome to. Phil, this but, is your new homework. Find me okay. this game. <laughs> Princess points. The Modiphius game is quite well done, too. And it uses the same rules as Star Trek Adventures, basically. Michael, I don't. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, there was a very brief expansion in, in Different Worlds number four for your game, which added romance rules. Yes. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And, and uh, uh, it's, it's something that uh, is, is a little bit infamous among the, uh, the old school revival. I read those. And, but um, we, found, we found them to be incredibly useful in our RPG because... Charisma is one of the stats, right? And you need some sort of a reaction role sure. for, um, you know, at, our group loves to try and seduce people constantly. But that was what Kirk did often. He would seduce yeah. people in order to get his ends. Yeah. And, and basically uh, all you ever get to see is him pulling his shirt down and pulling his boots back on. But uh, yes. you get to see the Yeah, Scotty can do can do engineering miracles. McCoy can do medical miracles. Spock can do any kind of miracle. That's any correct. kind. That's right. uh, Both physically and mentally, apparently. But Kirk's stat was charisma. That's what he you're, was You're about. absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And uh, while his score isn't as high as legend would have it, it was still a pretty damn good score. I've been living here in the South for 40 years. And I've been playing with the same group of people for the past 20 years. And we played a decade of cyberpunk. Cool. And during the cyberpunk game, I would sometimes GM and sometimes one of the ladies in our group would GM. I made a horrible, horrible mistake. I decided to play a female character in the game. Oh, no. And... Uh, I promptly got an education. <laughs> <laughs> I now know a lot more about some of the negative aspects of being female in a, in a cyberpunk world than I ever cared to know. Sure. Wow. Fortunately, my character also carried a big gun 
and uh, you have wronged me. Boom! So <laughs> perfect. <laughs> but this, uh, this brings it back to something you said earlier about uh-huh. how uh, fans can can uh, really immerse themselves in their fandom through gaming. Oh, so sure. We sort of found. I don't know about you guys. When I go back and watch a Star Trek episode now, after having played the RPG so much, things that they say, I kind of like. Uh, I feel. I understand more when they're like warp factor seven and people start to be like, what? Or like warp factor eight and people are like, <gasps> you know, since we've played the RPG. Captain, I kind of changed the laws of physics. Right. <laughs> I think that the energy that the ship's expending, that's something I never grokked when I watched the show, right? Well, Whenever they would talk about that, it, it never even got to me and now i'm like noticing it all the time and going oh yeah of course they don't have energy to do that but sound effects kind of took care of that you know the ship would be ramping up you know this noise as it ramped up to speed and you and you'd get the impression that i can put the shields up or i can put the phasers back online you can't have yeah. both captain absolutely and uh, you get you get that in a lot of the games too uh, have you have you looked at the Star Trek Adventures game from uh, from Odysseus? Have you ever played Star? Ever, you ever played uh, the Starfleet Battle Manual? No, uh, afraid not. Okay, well, basically the whole point is is you, your engines produce energy. As the commander of the ship, you apportion the energy out to shields and weapons and warp, with a couple of points held back for things like you know minor things like life support. So what happens is the higher you go in warp speed, the more energy you need. And uh, so it can get to the point where you're hitting warp eight and you may be able technically to do warp eight, but if you do, you're gonna have to drop aft shields or, or, uh, or charge up your phasers and only get one shot off before they can be recharged, things like that. In the Star Trek Adventures game, they do that with power. A ship's power is rated According to its uh, this, they treat a ship like a character, okay? Yeah. And the engines are one of your character's attributes. For example, the engines on this baby here are uh, eight or nine, depends on the model. Uh, you take those nine points, and that energy can be used to increase your warp speed if you're in a chase, one of those long distance chases. And if you can generate more energy into warp than the Klingon ship can, you can beat him. You can catch up with him. Uh, it takes it takes at least a point of energy to fire phasers. If you pump more energy into phasers, you do more damage. Right. But it takes at least one to fire them. One of the reasons we've uh, been using your RPG, Scotty, is um, well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, using a doing over a video chat um we like to keep it simple sure the more nitty-gritty it gets into um energy allocation the more people start to tune out the less clear the stakes become uh and we have a lot of players we have sometimes nine players and so um those sort of decisions which fall in just one player um kind of can derail the game so the usefulness of your rpg um is the simplicity and the, the sort of the cinematic things which are in it. Um, 
We use uh, we use a very simple uh, energy system out of uh, I don't know if you've you're familiar with Starships and Spacemen, sure. which was contemporary with your RPG. Mm-hmm. We just borrowed from there, and it's kind of like it's what sort of sounds like what you're describing. The ship has kind of like a, a hit points, and everything you do costs it energy, and everything that it whenever gets uh, damaged that also costs it energy. So it's really yeah. clear for the players, you know, we've got. 50 energy units left you know if we do this we're down to 45 if we get hit again we're probably dead you know that sort of stuff yeah every single officer should have the chance to do something if you're stuck in a space combat yeah we have that too so so the system we use doesn't really um it doesn't really care so much about where the ships are you're not really um looking at a picture of where the ships are in relation to each other and, and, and uh, doing tactical. It's more like there's roles for each player, um, how the communications person can scramble the enemy sensors or how the, um, the medical officer can address um, casualties on the ship, which affect the, fun- the functionality of the ship. That sort well, of stuff. I, I don't use miniatures that often in a game either. The only time we really use miniatures playing Star Trek was when we were invading an Orion slave market. And, uh, oh, I want to were... hear all about it. Yes, you go. <laughs> Tell us there everything. Were lots of Orion. There were lots of Orions there. And, uh, yeah. and, and we freed a bunch of slaves and discovered that some of them weren't as slavey as we thought they were. Yeah, we always used, um, in our face-to-face D&D games, um, we had a, a big whiteboard on the wall. And I would just sort of uh, a sketch where everyone was in relation to each other. And in our video chats, I'll sometimes put up a map um, and share it with everybody and just sort of uh, move them around. Um, but your rules include like movement rules. You can move 10 mm-hmm. meters a turn and that sort of stuff. That's a little too nitty gritty for us. Modern uh, day uh, RPGs use the uh, concept of zones. You're either in the same zone with somebody or they're in the next zone over or two zones away or they're a long ways away. Think of it as being in, if you're in my kitchen, like I am right now in the dining area, that's a zone. But if somebody's in the front room and I can see them from here, that would be a zone away. If you, if you do it in terms of zones, you'll find it, you'll be a lot happier. Well, your, your RPG includes that though. It has near or close and, mm-hmm. uh, and far ranges, melee range, and it sort of gives about how many is- meters that would be. Yeah, what I'm saying is, is don't obsess with how many meters it is. Just, you know. Well, we don't. Can you you see him? Can you not see him? Is part of his body hidden by a, you know, by a a fence? Well, the fence then, anything, anything behind the fence you ignore on the hit location table, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, It sounds to me like you're making very intelligent decisions with your game. You're taking what amounts to being a very simple game and you, you put into it exactly what you need which is what was my intention was when i made it in the first place it was designed to be a tool a tool kit and uh it sounds to me like you're doing great well thanks it don't it's, don't it's puff great... him up too much he's all right well <laughs> let me puff up you a little bit scotty because um i've the more i get into this rule book and i've read reviews of it and people say it's kind of um well, it doesn't cover all the bases you want and stuff. You uh-huh. sort of said you think it, it it seems rushed, but there is so much in here. In terms of all the equipment, 
it's encyclopedic. The the creatures that you can encounter, the aliens, um, the uh, the different kinds of psionics, all that stuff. It's all it's all there. I've um, I've been looking at the FASA rule set too, and and of course it, it does go into areas that are not covered here. But the areas that are covered here, this is more thorough, or it's about the same um, in many respects. But um, how did you pull together um, and and flesh out? So there's there's all this stuff that I have to like look up in the concordance. Well, I had an extensive library, just like you do behind you, Philip. And uh, I would use it all the time. The concordance, B. Joe Trimble's concordance was like yeah. my go-to for the listing of all. So you, in, in the back of your RPG, there's a, there's a sort of a bibliography. Uh -huh. It mentions the tech manual and the concordance, the novelizations of the episodes. Obviously, you didn't have videotapes between the concordance and the novelizations. That sort of... Was your and since then, since then, I added the Star Trek spaceflight chronology, the Enterprise yep. Officer's Manual, Star Trek maps like you posted in your site, uh, Star Trek Marvel Comics and Gold Key Comics, and Star Trek the Motion Picture Blueprints. So anyway, I, I got the right that had this. If oh, you ever yes. played with it, this oh, is also yeah. amazing. I like the new ones though. The new ones are better maps. No, done by the same Wrong. guy. Jeffrey Mandel. <laughs> now, now, I got the rights back from Heritage. Yeah. They signed the rights back to me, and I said, "You know what? They were they had promised me I was going to get to do another expansion for it that would have spaceships." <gasps> and uh, so I uh, I said, "Well, you know, I can't get a license." But maybe I can do what Lou did and just skies the game so much that you know no one will really yell at me a lot if I if I do Starfleet Voyagers, and I yeah. did, and I did a whole bunch of them. I had to put it. I bought the dice from Lou, and I had the thing printed locally on web press, which is cheap. You don't do that anymore. Don't do that. No. Uh, the paper like will fall apart after a while. But uh, anyway. Uh, I ended up giving them all away at, at, at CoastCon in Mississippi, which is why I don't have any copies left after I lost mine to the flood. Oh, My no. daughter says that she thinks she has a copy of Starfleet Voyages in her collection, her boxes of stuff. She just recently moved to an area in New Orleans called the Treme, which used to be like near the red light district. But that was way back when. Things have changed. I wanted to ask because in the role the the, the role playing game is called Star Trek Adventure Gaming in the Final Frontier. Right. In within the rule book, it refers to itself as simply the Final Frontier. Was it your idea that that would be the name of for it? Or what do you think of it as Heritage Star Trek or just my game? I Lately, I've been calling it adventure gaming in the Final Frontier because that makes sure that we know exactly what game we're talking about. Yeah. But that's pretty much Heritage did that to distinguish it from anything else. I was curious if um, if you ever playtested it before it was published or if you demoed it at cons or anything early on in its publication. We played life. a lot of Star Trek-based Space Patrol games and Star Patrol games. Star Patrol was the successor to 
right. control and had a lot more stuff in it. I uh, I don't know if I can see this binder. Yeah. That binder is chock-a-block full of Star Patrol, which contains Space Patrol. Yeah. And the, the Star Patrol, the unpublished Star Patrol tech manual. Oh, yes, you mentioned that. With in, lots uh, and lots of artwork, and there's uh, there's there's star maps, and there's uh, so you have, uh, after after Final Frontier, you you did this, uh, you made a whole universe for your own uh, game called Star Patrol. Yep, and uh, we even made uh, patches you could you could purchase to put on a you know like for a convention. Or whatever. Do you have? Um, other than the two scenarios which are published in this in this game, what, what were some early uh, scenarios that you played out? Well, one thing we did was uh, we did a basic landing party scenario. This is the you know I, I would come up with with something I had, uh, and I, I got to tell you that being a science fiction fan is your is your best friend when you want to do GM a science fiction game. Uh, you especially if not all your players are big science fiction fans, or or not all your players are literary science fiction fans. Yeah, Philip, you can go to your copy of old Cole Anderson stuff and Heinlein stuff and uh, Lynn Carter. You name it. You Andre Norton. You can go and you can take one of those story ideas out of any of those collections. And it makes an excellent basis for a Star Trek game, just the bare bones of it. Well, you can use this one if you like. Uh, my crew recently, at the, at the beginning of their adventure, they had pulled into Starbase 47 for R&R &R before going off on their next mission. When they arrived at, at Starbase 47, the Commodore in charge of the station said, oh, thank God you're here. <laughs> It turns out that a freighter, a J-class freighter, full of Cations, have been rioting in the promenade. And that's that's the cat people, right? From yes, the series. Yeah. The almost Kazintis. <laughs> yeah. And the captain has to lend a bunch of her security teams to go over there and help subdue the Cations without killing them. The Cations don't seem to have that problem. Excellent. And it turns out, of course, it's not just as simple as we've been for years on this freighter going at warp three across Federation space, and we really want to cut loose, though there is some of that. Um, we just want to talk specifically about the two scenarios in sure. the rule book, because that's kind of one of the things we do is try and, uh, well, review well, all the scenarios. The so main scenario was inspired by the Galileo 7. Yes, we watch the Galileo. What, what we do is we usually watch an episode related to the the module right before we play it. So we did watch the Galileo Seven right before this, right? And then we watched the uh, the Slaver Weapon before we, we played the Slaver Ruins. Sure, that worked out really well. It's well, that's actually yeah. great. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. Somebody fixed my map up a little bit when it got published. Thank God. But the maps uh, are in the wrong order. It has the the map for the uh, shuttlecraft crash after the yeah slavery. yeah that's the only drawback to heritage's setup uh, no but uh, but the uh, the idea was to introduce people to a random 
number of things that were in the book that they could easily find if they needed to and play against them. The slaver weapon thing was, it's inspired of course by the, uh, the slaver weapon story from animation, which in turn was written by Larry Niven, a short yeah. story called The Soft Weapon. We can tell from this that you are familiar with Larry Niven's work, not just the, uh, not just the episode. Well, I'm not going to keep name dropping because. <laughs> no, 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 do. I'm so excited. Uh, Larry Niven was really great to talk to. He uh, he had no problem with me using anything from this from the slaver weapon because why not? You talked uh, to him for this for this RPG work, amongst other things. I met him at an SCA tournament in San Jose. He had wow. been drugged there by Jerry Purnell. They were both very good friends. And uh, Jerry was dressed in golden armor and beating on people with his uh, rattan. And uh, Larry was sitting back and eating cheese and drinking uh, mead and whatnot, enjoying himself. And wow. the cheese was brought over by Poland Karen Anderson. No way. And uh, so I got to meet a whole bunch of science fiction fans and uh, writers. And uh, I was a fanboy, totally, I assure Boy, you. you're not kidding. So I'm talking with Larry Niven. <laughs> and I said, I just read Ringworld. It was wonderful. He says, well, really? What did you like the best about it? It was the author test. What did you like best about Ringworld? Oh, yeah. tricky. And, uh, well, I, I said, I really like the alien character who was a native of Ringworld, who uh, was used her pheromones to control people and he says yeah what was your name <laughs> and i was stuck because first of all if you read an awful lot like i do you don't always hear it get pronounced yeah and alien names are the worst of all it's like risothra is that right am i wrong risothra risothra is the sex act between oh. aliens. Okay, I'm thinking the wrong. See what sticks in my no, mind, guys. But yeah. that's what she was doing. No, she she was would doing. use sex. She would use sex to uh, to gain control of people. But uh, her name was Harlequilaprillar. Well, that's all. So I you often, said it perfectly. Or prill. Okay? I often, when I'm reading something, I don't I don't sound out the words. Just kind of the 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 visual of the word is how I almost visualize the person. You know what I mean? Just the, uh -huh. the way the letters work. But anyway, uh, those two scenarios were basically done to showcase the stuff that was in the game, to show yeah. you what could be done. You know, in reality, you're not going to find a single planet that has all those different things on it, unless that's part of your story. It's a museum. Aliens have set it up. It's, you know... But you're right. I did know a lot about Niven's Known Universe. I'd read all of his Niven's Known Universe books. And, your, uh, so your, your ability to draw on all this uh, sci-fi uh, background, it shines through just in the way you sort of explain, here's how you open a stasis box. I think you say something like you do a metallic or a, a magnetic unsealing or something like that. Or, or just you'll, you'll throw in different artifacts that are in the stasis boxes and they're out of Asimov or, or whatever. There's a, a neuronic whip I picked up on there. These adventures were a crash course for us on um, 
well on the rules of the game. So the first one's very simple. You're just kind of walking around basically the planet from the Galileo 7. And uh -huh. uh, it's got a bunch of other stuff in there. And you're trying to find the lithium and um, trying to avoid combat or maybe go into combat. So, so it was very simplistic, but for us, it kind of worked. Like it, it was, it was helpful for me as a as a first time game master with this system, just to you know, to to start familiarizing myself with the language. of like arming your phaser or using your tricorder or your communicator, all that stuff. Um, so its simplicity was kind of useful. Um, we thought maybe there could have been something where, uh, where instead of fighting something, you had to maybe negotiate with someone or you found that maybe the plod plants were sentient or something like that. Because it, it, it did become a bit frustrating that there was only kind of you can only really fight stuff or run away from it yes and uh i want to uh that was kind of like a D, &D mentality you know yeah kill the kill the monsters take their stuff and uh i have to tell you that my wife used to play a lot of role-playing games with us with our groups and she stopped fairly abruptly when we played a game of Star Patrol that was very much like a Star Trek game. And she was playing a doctor character. And uh, there were a couple of other guys in the, in the group and they basically, they ran, their idea of role playing was to haul out their lasers and zap. And uh, she got sick of it. She said, you know, that's not how it works. That's not how you should be doing things. You should actually like investigate. You shouldn't just automatically shoot. And I tried to I tried to get around that by having like a, a situation where uh, you know you shoot something because you're, that's the way you act your your players, and then uh, the next thing you know, a, a, another alien comes around the corner and says, "Who shot Fluffy?" <laughs> so you have to negotiate with the pet owner. And I have to ask you guys this. Obviously, one of the things I cannot do is go around the country and visit every single person playing a Star Trek game that I, I worked on. Right. I have to write in such a way that hopefully they can get through it without having to me stand over them. They shouldn't have to turn to me and say, uh, Scotty, how is this supposed to really work? I have to ask you how you handle some things. Okay, please. How, this uh, is exciting. Also, I have to state that I agree with your wife, and that sounds like a thing I yell at everybody about all the time. So she was right. You're right. Well, we did, we did have a bit of a it's, conflict. It's, it's, poor, it's poor role playing. No, what I was going to ask you is this. Go. Uh, way back when, when I began playing Star Trek with, with people, uh, I noticed that there was a certain type of player who simply cannot take the subject matter seriously to save their life. It's all a big joke to them. And sometimes they want to play like main characters in the show. They want to play Spock. They want to play Kirk. How do you deal with that? How do you keep them on, an, on a more realistic keel when you run your games? Uh, I'm not against humor, guys. Yeah. Humor is great, but it should be in context humor. Well, Does that make sense? What, one yeah. of the things. Go ahead. 
I no, I think you might be saying the same thing I am. Go ahead, Philip. Well, I was just going to say one of the things we're doing is we're we're watching an episode between each session, as I mentioned, and that helps to kind of rein it back in because every every time we play, we can draw from examples from the episode that we watched, and it helps to keep drawing us back into the genre and how they think and how they act in Starfleet. We also have from Starfleet Handbook a list of of Starfleet general orders, which um, may or may not be exactly how what they followed in the show, but they, they at least they give something uh, the players something to be like, hey, wait a minute, shouldn't we be following General Order Two? Shouldn't we be following General Order Four or whatever it is? Um, so even though in the show they never they don't always follow those, at least that's something where someone can say, hold on, we're all you know part of this uh, Starfleet. Um, we also had some kind of, I don't want to say serious, but we had some talks with our player group at the very beginning about how we're not playing Dungeons and Dragons. We're playing a whole different, we're playing a whole different game and it is a different universe and your characters want to act the same way as your D and D characters do, because we had a group that played Dungeons and Dragons together for a very long time. And that was the only RPG we ever played. So I think it took everybody a minute to kind of click into being in the Star Trek universe and then also what that meant for their player style. We have one friend who plays with us um, whose name is John and he's going to know I'm talking about him if I didn't just tell you his name. Um, and his last name is Jarvis and we like to say he Jarvis his stuff. <laughs> so if there's a lever in a room and it says don't pull it, he's going to pull it. Right. And let's say you have a stasis box, right? And you give it to him and he decides to open it in a shuttle and then he destroys three other players or two other players and your way out of the situation. Um, he jarvises the situation and then he gets talking to him, but that's also very fun. So and he also respects the universe that you're in. He's doing it in character. So when he jarvises, it's because his character would do it. So while it's incredibly frustrating at times, it's also so fun and funny that we allow it and sometimes encourage it. If that you makes go sense. For you, you go for it is what you yeah. do. Well, yeah. Uh, as, as long as as long as he's he's working within the context of of, of the of the character and the, and your and your, your story. But if the, it's the person who makes fun of it and treats it as one big joke, is what I'm talking about. I don't uh, know. Occasionally, we have get people one. like that. Yeah, I think we've we've had a group that's existed so long together that those sorts of people, maybe we had them in the beginning, or I think when we first started playing, we'd have people maybe come in for one night to play D&D with us. But when you're in a group of like seven to 12, because sometimes our group got that big, um, depending on who was in town, right? But uh, people who've played with together for a long time, and we're all like, when we say a spell, we're going to be singing it or doing it in a character voice or acting it out. And you're the one who's being weird if you're making fun of it. So maybe we bully everybody into role playing. I don't know. Well, we've, we've curated our group. Yeah. So yeah and and I, I've done the same thing. I've had players who were, uh, you should pardon the term real munchkins. Yeah. You know, their character has to have the best armor and the heaviest gun and all that yeah. business. Yeah, we had some guys who wanted to to play barbarians and and have a million hit points and never die. We uh, we asked them to leave, 
But um, uh, yeah, with this, we also had a player who has not really watched a lot of Star Trek, and he immediately bought a laser rifle out of your rule book. And um, that was this whole thing. He was walking around with a laser rifle all the time. And we're kind of like, mm, not really what they do in Star Trek. But then that was his character. It was so funny. That, and now he was, leads a fan of Iran Pirates. This is, when, this is when you start to look at Starfleet and you go, wait a minute. Yes, it's Starfleet. And yes, it's quasi-military. But this is really a bunch of explorers. Yes. And uh, some of them have aggressive personalities and some have passive inquisitive personalities and so forth and so on. But in the end, Starfleet is a better military to work within than some other game universes you can think of because it is so easy for a GM to play, let's say, the captain. And the captain, when the captain says jump, you know, you try to hit the ceiling. Uh, you're supposed to do what the captain says. And, and if you play at a game that's that tight-knit, it had better be part of your story where you're encouraging them to, isn't the captain kind of harsh about, you know, asking everybody what happened to his strawberries? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then you, and, to... you encur and you encourage them to work against him. But in the case where it's just a regular crew, you really want more of a Picard-type captain. And if you're letting one of the players play the captain, how they treat the other players has to be kind of watched. You know what I yes. mean? Do you have oh, a captain who's a player? We do. Yeah. yeah, our friend Dave is, is the captain. And it's a funny thing. He was... Um, uh, he was a fighter in our D and D campaign, and he was very rarely involved himself in any of the decision making. He was content to just uh, hit it with his sword when he was asked to, and occasionally feel really strong about like a moral decision or something like that. But more or less went went with the flow. And uh, and in Star Trek, turns out he's a huge Star Trek fan, and he feels very strongly about a lot of things with Star Trek. So he's really thrown himself into this. Well, he's. Um, he's the captain, um, and we try to uh, we try to, to 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 designate teams within the crew on each given on any given adventure that he's not part of, or if he's part of, he's not the leader of the team. I know that goes a little bit against the show, but like um, he kind of delegates a lot, and he has a veto pen for things he feels very strongly about. Uh, and occasionally, does he, also have, does he also have a secondary character? I don't think so. No, okay. his he but but his character is like a former engineer. Um so he often just kind of falls back into that role. He'll leave he'll leave the help, he'll leave command of the bridge to his second in command while he goes and runs down to engineering or something like that. No, he loves that. <laughs> He's he is the strongest at reading the technical schematics and maps and things like that. So a lot of times we heavily rely on him if maybe somebody is not as good at that me yeah if you have a if you have a, a crew which is uh where you have an npc as the captain the captain can very much take the starfleet regulations seriously 
and stay on the damn ship. Away teams and, play, and landing parties are the ones that go down and go on, off on shuttlecraft trips, not the captain. But if you've got a player captain, he's going to want to occasionally visit the, uh, the bar on Antares 4. You know, he's going to occasionally want to, uh, you know, to go applaud the dancers in an Argelian uh, <laughs> cabaret. Well, plus, like pressing you know, a little button on the table, I know. Scotty, <laughs> there, there's no such regulation. That's all I'm going to say. There's no such regulation. Hmm. Right. Captain goes down with his ship. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I we, think we it's... Like having a, it, it's in TNG where it's explicitly stated that the captain should not be going on away missions. There's a quote from The Wrath of Khan where, where Savick is saying there's a regulation and, and, and Kirk responds, there's no such regulation. And, and it's up nice. to your interpretation whether he's just like <laughs> taking cheek about it or if she's right. Yeah, Savick was really good at that. God, you're, I, uh... you're, you're a pop culture guru. You're, you're a fount of information, and you are in the room where it happened with so much of this stuff. Uh, it's, it's been such a pleasure. <coughs> this has been um, our first interview ever and uh, kind of a holy grail for me. You know, um, I've been writing and thinking about your RPG. Ooh, for pretty. Time. Sorry, Phil. I'm showing no. you mine. All right. Command Paracol and Science. And showing us their uh, Star Trek-themed uh, face masks. As, as, as Very nice. So I was going to ask you if you have anything you want to plug. So you have a Facebook page? Uh, well, it, it's not that much of a commercial type page. It's just basically for my friends oh, okay. and people yeah. who like the same stuff I do. For example, sure. if there's something happening in the in real space, <laughs> you know, yep. just the space like uh, the SpaceX uh, Crew Dragon Endeavor flight was fantastic. I watched all of that. And if there's anything happening with the with the space program, I tend to post it. If there's okay. anything happening with the Air Force, I tend to post it. Uh, I'm I'm very much a supporter of women uh, being allowed to fly fighter planes. So you're going to find notices wow. of, of 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 women who have excelled at doing that. And uh, so that's the kind of stuff I post. In addition to Star Trek and funny stuff and cartoon stuff and whatnot. That's and I'm an old guy, relatively. I was born in 51. Well, you, you sound young. It's because my, the cats. The cats keep me young. <laughs> when I have to chase awesome. after them. The third one came in the door just a little while ago. And said, about time you opened the damn door. I was scratching forever. He's the curmudgeon. I had to, get up, I had to get up to open the door for a cat as well, who's now asleep right here. <laughs> Scotty, thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. It's been a pleasure. And we really appreciate you being here. So thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it, folks. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. That is our podcast this week. We hope you like what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out. We also want to hear from you. So visit our website at www.rpgpopclub.com or email us at rpgpopclub at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought or if there's a module you'd love for us to review. You Live really long and that. prosper, so. folks. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Good night. Yeah.